Hello and welcome to another episode of Blankets and Boundaries. I'm your guide, Duke Novak, and this is a special episode today. Um, I'm actually going to pull from another podcast, an interview I did for Inform, a podcast run by Neil Gorman and Jared Elwert. Um, Neil Gorman is a professor of mine that I had in my uh, master's level classes, and I've also recently had him as a professor as I pursue my doctorate in social work at Aurora University. And if there's any reason uh, to pursue your doctorate at Aurora University, Neil Gorman would be a reason to do it. He's an exceptional professor. Um, He's opened my mind and and challenged my thinking time and time again. And it's always a pleasure to have him teach me. And this was a really cool experience to have him interview me about a, a man who... I hold in in high regard, and his name is D.W. Winnicott, Donald Woods Winnicott, or as his close friends call him, Winnie. So sit back uh, and enjoy this interview. Again, it's from the Inform podcast by Neil Gorman and Jared Elwert, Um, and it's a pretty long interview where I get a chance uh, to sit down and talk about D.W. Winnicott. Let's get started. Hit record, and you can see that the numbers are moving. Uh huh. Important. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes okay. you think you've hit record, and you haven't hit record, and then what you're you're gonna have is a situation where you think you're talking to somebody, and it's not recording, and that's bad. the inform podcast this is episode number zero four nine and on this episode what you're going to hear is me sitting down with a former student of mine whose name is duke novak we had a really fun kind of uh freewheeling all over the place conversation about the work and the thought of the psychoanalyst winnicott and doing this episode was a huge, wonderful thrill for me for a bunch of different reasons. But I'm going to tell you three of them real quick here. The first reason is that Duke is a really fun person to talk to. Uh, I've gotten to know him over the years and he is, there's people who are just really fun to talk to. They, they're good at being people to talk to. Duke is one of those people. He has great ideas himself that he puts forward in a really uh, wonderful way. He's he, he knows a lot about a bunch of different things, but he doesn't show off what he knows. I, at least I don't think that he does. And uh, he's really interested in what other people think when he's talking to them about whatever it is that you're talking about. A real joy to talk to. So talking with Duke is always fun. I got to do that and I had a really great time. The second reason is that this is the first time, I believe, in the history of the Inform podcast that I was able to do a podcast where I was sitting in a room talking into a microphone 
and the other person who whose voice you hear on the podcast was in the same room as me, also talking into a microphone sitting not that far away from me. Um, we're coming kind of more and more out of pandemic living at this point. We're able to do stuff like this and it is really nice. It is extremely nice to be able to sit in the same room as somebody to look at them while you're talking to them and have them see you when you're talking to them. And, uh, yeah, there's something about being in the same room. There's nothing. I mean, I really love the fact that we have zoom and all these really great communication technologies. Now they're, they're wonderful. They make life convenient and oftentimes very easy. I certainly use them a whole bunch and I'm, I'm glad that I have the option to use them, but sitting in the room with somebody that is really, really great. And the third reason that this podcast was a lot of fun for me is the subject matter that we were talking about. So Winnicott is a psychoanalytic thinker who has a real special place in my own formation as an analyst. And I think that's because when I, you know, when I first started reading psychoanalysis seriously, I started with Freud, you know, read, I didn't read everything that Freud wrote, but I read some stuff that Freud had written. And from Freud, I moved to the neo-Freudians and uh, some of the ego psychologists. Then from them, I moved to object relations theorists. I started with Melanie Klein. From Melanie Klein, I moved to, uh, I think I went to Fairburn. And then after Fairburn, I went to Winnicott and Beyond. And I can still to this day remember when I started reading Winnicott, thinking, wow, this is awesome. There's so many cool ideas here. The way that Winnicott comes across in his writing really did something for me and to me. And it still does to this day. You know, at this point in my formation, in my, my career, my life as an analyst, I am a dyed-in-the-wool Lacanian. That, that is what I am. That is, that is my camp. Those are my people. But I didn't start there. And I actually came to Lacan. I discovered Lacan by getting really into Winnicott. Winnicott was an analyst who Lacan actually translated, I think, some of Winnicott's work into French. Winnicott was somebody who was dispatched by the IPA to go to France and investigate what Lacan was doing with his variable length sessions and stuff like that. So anyways, the, the name Lacan was something that came up when I was reading about Winnicott and reading his thinking and reading stuff about his life. And I thought, huh, Lacan, I don't know that name. At that time, I didn't know that name. I wonder who that is. And, you know, I Googled him. I read some stuff on the internet. Eventually, I ordered some books. And now, like, you know, almost 10 years later, I'm a Lacanian. But I got there through Winnicott. And even though I, I identify as a Lacanian, I, I call myself a Lacanian, that is their tradition. That is, as I said, my tradition. The work of Winnicott continues to be something that does speak to me. The ideas that Winnicott puts forward are, I think, incredible ideas. They're wonderful ideas. They're interesting, thought-provoking, fascinating ideas. And on this episode of the Informed Podcast, I got to talk about those ideas with Duke. So having said that, I'm going to play some transition music. And then when we come back, you will be able to hear 
The Informed Podcast, episode 049, my interview with Duke Novak. Welcome to the Inform Podcast. My name is Neil, and today I am joined by somebody. This is the first episode of the Inform Podcast that I'm actually doing in like the sort of post-pandemic living. So this is the first time I'm sitting in the same room with another person. I'm not sitting in the room and looking at my computer and somebody who's far away from me. I'm sitting here with another person whose name is Duke Novak. Duke, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself, your background, and then uh, tell them what we're going to be talking about today. Sure thing. Um, so my name is Duke Novak. Uh, long history of working with kids. Um, I was an actor back in the day, um, did a lot of theater work, um, but that led me into the field of education uh, where I've, I've pretty much worked with kids from three to about 22 in, in different environments, um, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, Rounds, all different races, cultures, um, kids from all over, including the um, ultra powerful uh, folks out in Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. And I uh, taught their kids both drama and physical education. Um, I'm also trained as a Montessori teacher from three to six year olds. And uh, currently I am a school social worker, uh, which is... Uh, passion of mine to to work with teenagers at, at a high school so a lot of experience with with the kiddos and what is it that you wanted to talk about on the podcast today or who maybe is the better question did you want to talk about on the podcast today so currently i'm getting my doctorate and uh neil is lucky enough to be my professor or i'm lucky enough to be his student um, it goes both ways <laughs> it goes both ways uh and uh I've been studying a, a man named D.W. Winnicott, um, who I have uh, a great fondness for after reading many of his books and, and uh, the work that he did with kids as well. He was a pediatrician and also a psychoanalyst. Uh, and, and his theories just have really touched me um, and his ability to really deeply listen to the kids that he worked with, including infants and babies. All right. So that, that actually gives us a couple of different places to start here. So you are somebody who has done a lot of different things that you would call working with kids, right? In a lot of different settings, a lot of different contexts, probably under a variety of different assumptions, you know, in different institutions, all that sort of stuff. And you discovered this guy, Donald Woods Winnicott, oftentimes just referred to by his last name, Winnicott. Mm -hmm. who or is, Winnie. <laughs> yeah, for, for some people, they might call him, call him Winnie. I actually just had somebody on this podcast a little bit ago. I interviewed uh, somebody whose name is Winnie oh, and good, stuff. Yeah. So uh, yeah, for some people maybe who listen to that episode, we're not talking about uh, the same person here. But anyways, uh, you encountered Winnicott's work and it, it spoke to you. You said you did it, it in that 
something kind of started to resonate with you. You were thinking to yourself, there's something here that I don't find or don't experience maybe when I read other people and when I interact with their ideas. How would you describe what was present in the thinking of Winnicott that maybe you didn't encounter in other places? Because I'm sure you have read stuff that's been interesting to you, but maybe didn't speak to you in the way that Winnicott did. Certainly. And it did take some time. Um, Often I I feel people... uh, pick up theoretical work and only take it so far. You you really have to get in there and over some time and some research and, and really getting to know even himself, you know, reading his biographies and things. Um, it took some time for me to really truly understand even what he was trying to get at at times. Um, but over time and, and reading about like his actual experiences even, um, I... I I found a a connection to him. Um, He worked in, I believe it was World War II, he worked in these homes where these kids were, these kind of uh, delinquent kids were shipped off to these homes. And he worked closely with these homes. And that's sometimes how I see myself working with the children that I work with. Um, These kids who maybe have some troubles and some rough uh, upbringings. Um, and when I, when I connected in that real way and not just a theoretical way, um, that's when his work started to come alive for me. So what I, I think you're referring to, and you, you can tell me if I'm misremembering my Winnicott here. I think you're actually probably more familiar with Winnicott at this moment than I am. Uh, during World War II, there's this, you know, the, the Germans are bombing London. A bunch of parents have gotten involved in the war effort in various ways. Fathers are becoming soldiers. Mothers are also Correct. getting involved in different ways. And people thought, we can't have these kids in cities like Manchester and Liverpool and London. They're getting bombed. Correct. It's not a good yeah. place for kids right. to be. Right. And so they took the kids and they sent them to the British countryside, which was not being bombed. Correct. And they lived in what we might think of today as sort of a group home kind of environment. Exactly. Yeah. And they were, they're, I'm using my air quote fingers here. Their needs were seen to by different professionals. And Winnicott was one of the people who kind of went and checked out what was going on here. He was like a supervisor. Yeah, he would come out and and work not only with the kids, but the caretakers of the children. Uh, kind of like a resident, it was like a residential though. So it was like a group home, like you said, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I, some people might, who are familiar with attachment theory, might also know that John Bowlby was another person who was also doing this, both Winnicott and Bowlby Correct. were being trained by Melanie Klein. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of their, their connection, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And Winnicott had an interesting reaction to this, right? I mean, he saw what was happening here and it seems like he understood why people might think it was a good idea Mm -hmm. to take these kids away from one environment and put them in another one. But I also think it might not be accurate to say that he was incredibly supportive of the idea in the way it was being carried out. Correct. And, and what he observed was what he calls deprivation, um, that these kids um, that had lost that kind of family structure, um, 
he kind of says they were, you know, they, they might act out or, you know, act out behaviorally. Uh, but he, he called that an unconscious kind of messaging of like, please just, I need whatever the child is. I, I need some structure. I need some, you know, family, uh, to, uh, hold me. Um, so he worked closely actually with the social workers at the group home. He actually married one of them, I believe his second marriage, Claire Winnicott. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he also saw that how important it was for those caretakers to be cared for, um, because of the stress that that job, you know, had created and he trained them to kind of, you know, hold these kids and provide that structure in that holding environment that he felt they were screaming out for unconsciously. So you used a really particular term there, hold, right. To, mm-hmm. to be held. And I think that when I first read Winnicott, I misread him and I maybe took that term a little bit too literally like mm-hmm. that. What do you, is he saying that, that therapists, that social workers, that mental health professionals should literally like hold hug, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the people who they're working with. And I, well, I don't think he would necessarily be opposed to those sorts of mm-hmm. things happening if they happened in a way that he would call a spontaneous gesture. Mm-hmm. But I, I, that's, it's not that simple, right? He's not saying like, if all we do is hug it out, everything is going to be <laughs> no. okay. I think he means holding in a much more profound and also metaphorical way, right? Correct. He, he even felt that an interpretation in like a, in a session could be a, a form of holding, uh, an emotional holding. Uh, I'm going to give a little plug to my podcast that I'm going to be creating hopefully here in the future called uh, Blankets and Boundaries. Um, I think where a lot of the misinterpretation sometimes comes from is that emphasis on that holding physically or that emotional kind of kumbaya, you know, kind of stuff. But he also stressed, and maybe not as much as I'd like him to stress, that idea of boundaries. Um, I know he did when uh, he, he kind of came up with a little checklist for the therapeutic setting where the boundaries were, you know, you got to show up on time. It's for a certain amount of time. Um, I'm not going to fall asleep. I'm going to stay awake. You know, these were kind of boundaries set up in the therapeutic setting that he felt were necessary, as well as the emotional holding or the interpretations. Um, He felt, you know, it needed to be bound. So that one of the ways I think I grew to understand this concept of holding in the way that Winnicott thinks about it, writes about it, speaks about it is to understand what it is not. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that he was talking about a lot, he saw this happening in those group homes that we were just discussing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that he was a psychoanalyst. I think he saw this happen in psychoanalytic training. Mm -hmm. I think he saw it happening perhaps in psychoanalytic sessions that what would happen is people would get dropped. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not a literal term, right? Correct. He doesn't think that somebody like was actually like picking up human bodies and then like dropping them. Well said. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. But he, he would say that what people were all afraid of, everybody kind of regardless of where they are in their life, if they're a very young child, if they're a very old person who knows that they're going to die soon and everything in between that people crave very much to, to feel what we might call safe or secure and what he called held 
Yes. And that what they were all afraid of was that they were going to be dropped. Correct. I, I, I love the way that's, that's beautifully said. Um, and, and like I was trying to talk about earlier, you know, I work with a lot of teenagers, um, who feel uh, they'll come up to me and say, yeah, I can do whatever I want. You know, like life is, it's awesome. My parents don't care. They, they could give a rat what I'm, I'm doing or what I'm up to. They are the most anxious kids I work with. Um, they think they're living the life, but underneath subconsciously, I, I, I've observed what he kind of refers to as this screaming out for that hold. They almost feel like they've been dropped, even though they consciously maybe don't put that together. Right. And if that's accurate, if people have been dropped, I think Winnicott might also extend that metaphor and say that when you're dropped and, and you know, you might fall fairly far when you are, mm -hmm. you get hurt, you get injured. Correct. And, um, you know, I, I think when, when I was teaching one of your classes, I might've made this metaphor, but I can't remember if I did or not. Uh, I think that, uh, imagine the following thing, I guess it's probably easier to do it, set it up in this way. Imagine there's a kid who's riding a skateboard. <laughs> they fall off their skateboard. They land on their arm and it's, they, they it, the arm is broken. Not so much so that the bone is sticking out or anything like that, but he, they've got a broken arm, a, a fracture, mm -hmm. we'll say. If the kid goes home to their parents and is like, I hurt myself, and the parents go, okay, get in the car, go to the ER, x-rays, casts, all that. You know, eventually the cast comes off. The cast is on there holding the um, broken bone, mm -hmm. right? So that it can heal mm -hmm. uh, appropriately without much difficulty. And so that the kid can maybe use that arm with less pain, perhaps, uh, than if the cast wasn't there. All of that. So that's one way it could go when things go well. Let's say that the kid hides their broken arm for whatever reason and they no one notices that they're doing that. And let's say that the arm heals. Well, it heals in a way which is not quite right because the bone hasn't been set and all those sorts of things. Correct. And that means that the, the first kid, the kid who had their bone set and casted and all that, they're going to be able to, later on, they might have a scar that they can look at on their arm and they can see the scar, but the scar doesn't hurt them in the present. Mm -hmm. So the scar reminds them, I that's when I broke my arm, it hurt really bad, but it doesn't hurt now. Mm -hmm. uh, the second kid who didn't have that, they have a scar and their arm hurts like hell when they try to use it, mm -hmm. right? I think people have emotional bones mm -hmm. is one of the claims that I make when I teach about doing any kind of psychotherapeutic work. And when people get dropped, what happens, I think, is those bones might get broken mm -hmm. and they might not heal correctly. Mm -hmm. And so what happens, I think, in that instance is you have people who you know, have this pain that they're carrying around with them all the time. And uh, as you've pointed out with the kids that you work with, if you try to um, help them with that, you have to kind of like touch that hurt area. Yeah. And usually the reaction is like, get away from me. Don't touch me. Don't engage with me. I don't like you. Mm -hmm. Fuck off. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, just get out of my face. Yes. But you're saying, according to Winnicott's theory, what those kids are doing is not meaning mm -hmm. actually that they don't want you to, uh, correct. 
Yeah. Why don't you take it from there? Yeah, totally correct. And that's where I think a lot of people interpret those bad behaviors, so to say, and they take it personally and it starts like, you know, look at this little brat, you know, like, why do I have to deal with this brat? And they kind of drop them again, you know, and they, and they're like, they don't want to deal with them. But if you can kind of see that what they're really trying to call out for is that, um, that cast, like you said, and, and what interests me about your metaphor is, is the cast. So, and that's what I kind of want to cover in my, um, Blinken's Boundaries podcast is what does that cast look like? So yes, they need resources. They need the money to be able to go to the hospital to get the cast or health insurance. You know, they need those resources. Uh, A blanket is a resource. They need warmth. They need, you know, food on the table. They need a a home, clothing, those types of things. And a lot of families deal just with that. You know, it's a struggle to just put food on the table and uh, be able to give your kid a cast. But then there's these other elements, uh, that we've been talking about that kind of emotional cast, um, that also needs to be present. Um, so you put the cast on, but then maybe you sit with your kid, you know, and, and you sit with them, you know, you put your arm around their shoulder. Hey, well, you know, how you feeling? What, what, you know, how did that go for you? You know, how, how you doing? There's that also that emotional blanket that needs to be present. Um, and I think that comes from listening to your child and maybe seeing what they need, uh, maybe clarify asking them about their feelings. Oftentimes kids are very confused about their feelings and what's going on. Um, that kid might be very embarrassed who broke his arm, you know, and you might have to deal with that. Or maybe his friends don't want to ride their bikes with them anymore. You know, that kind of thing. So there's, there's that. And then there's also this boundaries, which we've talked about this before. Winnicott does kind of focus more on the blankets, on the, f- the feminine. Um, the maternal people would the say. Mater- Eternal, right. Uh, but then there's these boundaries that I think are very important in our world as well, which to me seem to be changing constantly in our day and age. These boundaries are just like all over the place. They're different for different people. Some people want their boundaries here, there. They want them changed for different reasons. Um but that's also an important aspect to this. So maybe the kid was goofing off. Maybe he shouldn't have been riding his bike where he's riding his bike. So you got to have that conversation too, you know, so that kid can't just do whatever he wants or he feels held in that way as well as that blanket sort of way. So, you know, this could be a man or a woman. I'm just using, you know, feminine and masculine as kind of typologies, but, uh, that feminine kind of care of providing and that emotional sort of, um, holding and that masculine also, uh, holding, which oftentimes is the boundaries that are created in a family. Like kids don't want to just do whatever they want. (laughs) Um, they think they do. They, they'll tell you, I don't want a curfew, but dad or the masculine boundaries, whoever that may be in the family needs to set that. And then they feel safer. They actually want that on a subconscious level to feel safe. And it's so interesting to me, as you say that I have a bunch of different things kind of going off in my brain right now. And so the first is, you know, Winnicott was a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. He 
he understood psychoanalytic theory very deeply. He was well versed in it, well read, all of that. And also a pediatrician. Yeah, also a mm-hmm. pediatrician. It, what I and this is where I think it, what, what you brought up. The first thing that came to mind is one of the criticisms, which, in my experience, is frequently leveled at Winnicott. Me, I mean, oftentimes by people in my section of the psychoanalytic landscape, the Lacanians. And it's this idea that in psychoanalysis, you could say there's there's a maternal kind of thing and there's a paternal thing. I think you use the words masculine and feminine to describe mm-hmm. them. I'll, I'll probably use the words maternal and paternal. Sure. So the idea is that, you know, between the infant and the mother, there is this very special bond which involves a massive amount of of nurturing and caring for and all those sorts of stuff. Winnicott, I know, had this really interesting idea called uh, primary maternal preoccupation, right? Mm-hmm. Which was this idea that when an infant, human infant is first born, it's so utterly dependent. Correct. Right? Yeah. That human beings are, are born you know, like well before they can do a lot of things. <laughs> yes. Uh, have you ever heard of this thing called the fourth trimester? No. Uh, oh, maybe it's been mentioned to me, but you'd have to refresh my memory. So it, it, having had kids somewhat recently, there's this, you know, there's three trimesters and then there's this idea that when the kid is born, that's the first three months of their life are the fourth trimester. Yep. And it's because they still like, they're not able to, their bodies can't do so much. They don't sweat when they're first born. That's mm-hmm. still developing. There's, they can't focus their eyes. Winnicott would say there's no such thing as a baby. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not without a mother. Right. Yeah, Correct. for sure. Mm-hmm. And so he, he theorized that women who have babies, when they give birth, they enter into this thing, this period called primary maternal preoccupation, where they're so focused mm-hmm. on taking care of this new human being who's yes. just come into the world and truly is completely incapable of caring for itself. And, you know, that goes on and that's appropriate, I think mm-hmm. he would say, mm-hmm. for a period of time. Correct. I think you would also say, and this is your point about boundaries, I believe, that you don't want to do that forever. Mm-hmm. Correct. You know, at a certain point, you have to let your baby cry instead mm-hmm. of going in to its root, to, to the crib or the bassinet or whatever and picking it up and comforting it. Mm-hmm. You know, at a certain point, even when the kid's like, I'm hungry, you have to, you might say, well, we're in the car and driving, so you're going to have to wait however long. Exactly. And then you will give you something to eat. Right. Exactly. And, and you, and you brought up that kind of primary maternal preoccupation. Um, he also came up with this term, good enough mother. Um, Cause I think what he also saw is that can be taken to an extreme. Um, and I've, I've seen this sometimes in modern parenting where they'll read every book. They'll try to be as perfect as possible. They'll try to like, you know, just be on top of everything and, and be perfect really. Um, but he, he, he found it was just, that was just as detrimental um, to the child uh, and that the mother is a human being. It, 
that you, you just have to be good enough. Like don't put so much pressure on yourself to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. You got to, you know, keep your infant in, in your mind. You got to put maybe some of your anxieties aside and you got to feed, feed the child when, when you feel, I mean, the biggest thing he, he, you have to be able to attune with your infant and be able to interpret and not impose your own conveniences on the baby. Try to interpret and, and be one with the baby and, and see what you feel that the child may need. And again, that comes from a deep listening, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's, uh, and I think that's the thing that he was talking about. There was this idea that he thought was overemphasized in other schools of psychoanalytic thought where, where it is the function of the father, the paternal to come in between the baby and the mother. Mm-hmm. And this of course kicks off the Oedipal drama Mm-hmm. you know, which is a huge part of Freudian theory where the father, you know, basically says to, to the child, like, no, you can't have your mom. You have to share her with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he says, I think Winnicott calls attention to the fact that when this occurs, the father also probably says no to the mother. No, mm-hmm. you need to let the baby cry. You know, no, I will take care of this, those sorts of things. And Winnicott saw that side of things in his opinion, being overemphasized, overplayed, and maybe even overused. And he went to the maternal as his way of, of working with people. He, even though he was a, a man, mm-hmm. right? He, yeah. he acted in a very maternal way. Correct. Uh, and and also I believe, and I don't, I don't know as much about Melanie Klein and and object relations. I know he was kind of opposed to the idea of good breast, bad breast, like treating the mother as an object. And, and also that's kind of why, why he wanted to do this good enough term because he wanted the mother to be a real person, like with complexity and, and nuance rather than just this kind of black and white description as an object. Yeah. I mean, that for people who maybe aren't super familiar with that quick crash course, you know, Melanie Klein, who's the progenitor of object relations theory talked about how infants experience um sort of like two breasts or we could say two mothers right Mm -hmm. one is the mother that gives the baby what the baby wants milk or whatever um that's the good one Mm -hmm. and uh if the mother if the baby wants milk or whatever and the mother for any reason at all does not produce that for the child Mm -hmm. the baby thinks that's a that's a different person Right. That's the bad mom. I want the good mom to, who feeds me to show up and feed me. And I want this bad mom who's here not feeding me to get out of here. Right. And, and Winnicott, I think, you know, this is one of the cool things about him, in my opinion, is he's like, that's, that's overly simplistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, the, the idea here is that, yeah, of course, every parent, every single parent ever in the history of people being parents will think so many times I screwed that up. I messed this up. Right. I could have been more patient. I could have been more understanding. I should have asked more questions at the parent teacher conferences. (laughs) Who knows? Right. You know, and Winnicott would say, yes, absolutely. That is, that is actually true. You could have been more patient. You could have attempted to understand more. You could have asked more questions at the parent teacher conference. And maybe that would have been a great idea, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. Let's just say that you did ask the questions. You'd now think of new questions that you didn't ask. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You're you're always beating yourself up about that. Right. So, um, 
the idea of the good enough mother sort of in my mind matches up with a different really cool psychoanalytic concept. So Freud talked about three impossible professions. Those professions are being a politician, being a teacher and being a psychoanalyst. Oh, interesting. And he said they're impossible because if you do them well, people will still, <clears throat> people will still always be critical of you. They'll That's be right. like, you know what? You, you could have taught that, but you'll, you'll have, you know, if you're a teacher, you're going to get your, somebody will come in and observe your class and they'll give you their opportunities for growth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Or whatever. Um, if you're a politician, of course, people are going to be mad at whatever you do and some people won't be. And, uh, what was, and if you're a psychoanalyst, of course, people are going to be like, you. they're going to be frustrated because you aren't good enough at being a psychoanalyst. Yeah. That's one part of it. And the other part is the politician, the teacher, and the analyst all are probably also ra- rather critical of themselves. Correct. And they look at their own stuff and they'd be like, yeah, I could have done better. Uh-huh. I could have read more. I could have given it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. What you know? And this idea that you're bringing up, Winnicott's good enough mother... Mm-hmm. is the fourth thing on that list that's not on Freud's list, but Winnicott kind of adds it as an addendum here. It's impossible to be a good parent. You can't right. do it. That's right. You can be, to his point, good enough. And not good enough, but yes. Right, right, yeah. right. Well, what do you mean by that when you say, and not good enough? Say more. So not good enough, um, you know, with the kids I work with and... Um, you, you know, he he lays out kind of a simple... <laughs> A simple way to do it. Um, but if you're neglectful, you know, and you're not there listening to your child, um, you know, children, they don't get to pick, you know, where they come into the world. And they may, you know, come into the world and find themselves with maybe parents who, um, or a group home situation where those, uh, where they're constantly dropped, um, like we were talking about the holding environment, or their needs aren't um, important enough for the parents to uh, pay attention to. Uh, so I see a lot of that. And we've also talked about parents who maybe, uh, which we see a lot nowadays too, they may provide the blankets, but nothing else. Um, or they may be like you said, doubting, constantly doubting, trying to be perfect. Um, and that can be detrimental too. Uh, so it's those extremes, you know, when it kind of, you, you'll never be perfect, like you said, those professions. Um, but if you're neglectful of your, of your infant or child, you're going to have that kind of that pain, that hurt, that broken arm throughout life that it's going to be hard to set back, you know, set that bone back in place. Um, And also this kind of, you know, the terms now helicopter parents or, you know, there's millions of books out there that these parents can read and and from experts that are, you know, this is the way to do it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that, the sleep training, you know, these types of ideas of of training these uh, little human beings uh, almost as if they're, you know, uh, a little doggy or <laughs> a little little animal. Because um, Winnicott, Winnicott also had this theory about the false self and about over, 
obedient types of kids. And he, he feared that as well. Um, he felt like these kids needed to explore all sides of their nature. And if you're, if you're a parent and you're quick to kind of, Hey, I want the giggle, you know, I, or I don't want my kid to be angry. I want, I want them to comply that that can lead to this, this, um, early setting of a false self where the child is not then, um, trying to appease their own desires that may be occurring. They're just trying to appease the parental figure or the, you know, their guardian or whoever. So then they're constantly trying to, um, please others and which creates this false self and, and they neglect to really explore their own inner world. So that again, there's, there's stuff in that, that I, I think is, is just fascinating. Um, what I would say, I'm trying to think of even where to start with this. So Winnicott, one of the things that I, I find very interesting about him is that he's one of the psychoanalytic theorists who kind of values failure. Mm-hmm. And right. hate. Yeah. He uses hate, which is an area that I'm very excited to look into more. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, he wrote that great paper, Hate and the Countertransference, which I, I think is, is incredible. But so here's the, the deal, right? Is we we're talking about parenting and the good enough parent. And of course, there's going to be times where parents fail, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. What, what I like about Winnicott's theory is that it doesn't ignore that that happens. It doesn't say parents don't fail. Mm-hmm. Of course parents fail. Mm-hmm. But what he says is that a lot of times, even when you fail, that's actually not as bad as you think it is. Correct. Now, there, there are times where it is, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of one of the things that you were referencing, right? There, there are times where... If you're neglectful or, yeah. Yeah, abusive. Abusive, those sorts of, of things. That's So let's, let's not talk about those just for a moment mm-hmm. and just talk about probably the... You know, majority of instances, correct, yeah, where parents okay. are are thinking like, "Sure, I screwed that up. I wish I would have done something different in this scenario." I think that what Winnicott says is that by being good enough, what that means is you're going to have some things that you can, some things that you do, and they work out kind of the way that you'd like them to, and that's nice, mm-hmm. uh, and that's an opportunity to show your child what it's how how one behaves when something goes the way you want. Mm -hmm. Likewise, you're going to have things not go the way that you want. And when that happens, what you're going to want to do is, um, you know, show, show the child that you survive failures. Correct. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. um, there's a, another psychoanalytic theorist who I think a lot of times gets compared with Winnicott and that's Heinz Koha who created self psychology. Mm hmm. And it, he has a similar concept, I think, called optimal frustration. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, to this. And it's this idea that um, you have to have some type of failure in your life so that you have the experience of failing, getting mad or upset because you failed. And then after you're mad and upset, eventually you're not because emotions don't last forever. And you realize that you life goes on even after you failed. <laughs> I have a six-year-old uh, daughter, and I can even see that playing out in my own my own mind. A lot of the times, it's like she's gonna go through rough times. I, there's no way that I can protect her from that happening in a 100% capacity. 
Um, and exactly what you're saying, I, I think more like, how am I going to respond when she does happen to go through a tough time? And, and I might fail. I might like miss the mark, you know, but you might drop her. I might drop her. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I certainly could. Um, but that's not the end of the story. And, and being able to, to, to model, you know, in our family, we, we, Novaks don't give up, you know, uh, to be able to model that, um, I don't know, uh, learning how to ride those lows. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I've been through tough times. <laughs> I mean, we all have, right? Yeah. I, I think what's, I, I'm going to try to take this idea of good enough and sort of put it next to this other idea that we spoke about earlier. And it's this concept of being dropped. Okay. We're all going to drop the people who we care about. Yeah. We're all going to be dropped by the people that we care about. Correct. That is a natural and normal part of the human life. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some drops, abuse, neglect, those break bones. Those are, are catastrophic drops. There's a lot of drops, which, you know, I mean, you might skin your knee, mm-hmm. but that's that happens. Correct. You know what I mean? Uh, you'll survive that. There's a great book called The Wisdom of the skinned knee or something along those lines. Yeah. And sometimes you'll, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll fall down or you'll get dropped and you'll fail in some way. And you it won't even be as bad as skinning your knee. You might be embarrassed. We'll say, right. Mm-hmm. You know, people will do something and then later on they're embarrassed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, I don't know if you've experienced this with kids that you work with. I, I have, cause I, you know, see adolescent patients uh, there are kids who will, who I've worked with for a long enough time where I uh, met them maybe when they were in middle school and they started a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on they're in high school. Boy, did they regret that they did that yeah. mm-hmm. because now that's out there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to get it back. You know, that's a good point. <laughs> and, and it's annoying for those kids. It's hard. I think right. it's, it's, it, Certainly. they lose social capital Mm-hmm. They get made fun of and uh, it is hard. And, you know, the, but the, the idea is that there, there's a lesson in this, mm-hmm. of, of course, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it, you know, assuming that the kid doesn't get relentlessly picked on for it, mm-hmm. they, they can recover, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so I guess, like I said, putting these two things next to each other, if you're a therapist, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, you're going to drop the people you care about. Those are, that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is the part that I'm, I'm curious to ask you about. But Winnicott doesn't want to just be like, yeah, it's fine to drop people. I think he wants to say like, it's, it's going to happen. And that, that's okay when it happens, provided that you don't um, maybe just like uh, pretend like it didn't happen or something. Oh, that's huge. That's huge. Um, because... I can speak of my growing up myself. I had a mother who, sorry, mom, but, uh, would pretend like it didn't happen. And that was not the answer. I'll tell you that right now. That was not the answer. Um, and that's where I think social workers, therapists, even parents can do this. Teachers can do this. Um, if, if you have a relationship with the child, uh, that you can get to a place where you can, I, I, I'm not too fond of this word, but process the experience. Um, 
because ignoring, like you said, and pretending like nothing happens, that's when the, the child starts to build up, you know, all this, these years of, of, I don't know, uh, dramatic, you know, another word that gets tossed around a lot, but it starts to build up these experiences inside and never gets a chance to learn how to maybe, you know, uh, live with that YouTube channel that's out there already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I, I, like you said, I think Winnicott steps in and, and agrees with you that it should not be ignored. So I want to run something by you here and, sure. and you tell me how you think about this as somebody who has studied Winnicott as much as you have. Um, I, th- this is a long time ago now, but there was a time where I had been working with a teenage kid who had a variety of different um, issues. One of those issues was they were rather prone to losing their temper over what I might call minor things. Interestingly, I don't think they often lost their temper over what I would call major things, but little things, explosion. And, you know, what I would do is like every uh, six to eight weeks, maybe I would bring in the parent to do a session with the kid and the parent together. And I remember one day the kid got super worked up, very angry about something their parents said. And they were, they, they were just like giving their parent the verbals, you know, you're, you're the worst, you, you're mm. terrible. They're, they're being really mean, uh, you know, just like swinging for the fences. I just want to say hurtful things to my parent. Yeah. And, uh, I intervened at, at a certain point and I was just kind of trying to say something like, hold on a second here. You know, I, I can see that you're super upset. And the kid was like, that's right. And you're not doing anything about it. You know, you don't ever do anything. And then now it's my turn. Right. And the mm-hmm. kid's like, you know, just dah, 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 coming mm-hmm. at me. And I remember the parent jumped in then and, and said to the kid, do not speak to him that way. You do not talk to him that way. And I looked at the parent and I, I this happened like very autopiloty. And I was like, it's, it's actually okay. Mm-hmm. You know, they can talk to me that way. Mm-hmm. It's okay with me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if they, and I turned back to the kid, I'm like, is there anything else that you want to, want to, want to say? Like you, you have uh, your, go ahead. And the kid didn't actually have anything else that they wanted Mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. And then the parent was just like, no, that's not okay. That's not okay. It's not okay with me. And and I was like, well, okay, you have your relationship with your kid. I have a different relationship with your kid than you do. You know, I see them a lot less, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I, I'm like, listen, it's okay to be mad at me. Mm Mm-hmm. You can be mad. It's totally okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, if the kid like, you know, picked up the chair and like tried to hit me with it, that would be a different story. Mm -hmm. But just being angry, I can live with that. You Mm -hmm. know, so anyways, that's my my story. What do you think about that from a a Winnicottian point of view? He allowed people to (laughs) break his furniture, you know, and like swing for the fences. And we mentioned earlier about that hate type of... uh, side to all of us that we all have and and being able to explore that i think is healthy um story about my six-year-old daughter there was one day i let her just rip into me and she went to her room she was not cussing really but like tearing my name up up and down (laughs) she's just going at it you know I, i forget what it was even about but i you know didn't 
I allowed it to happen. She came out of her room, you know, maybe a half hour, uh, just like letting loose. Um, and we were best friends again. Um, but allowing that to, um, that form of expression in a child, because that goes back to that kind of that compliance and that false self kind of um, idea. We all have that um, hate and anger. And if we don't get a chance to express it um, or to play with it, you know, that's another big Winnicott idea of play. Um, It's going to, you know, come out in unhealthy ways. Right. So that's a really important concept, I think, right? Winnicott, thinks there are certain affects that we have being angry is one of them mm-hmm. that from a pretty young age where we're told no. That's right. 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 And I, well, I, I don't think that Winnicott suggests that it's okay to be angry anytime you want to be angry. Correct. Uh, mm-hmm. I, but that it's okay. Like you said, we're taught like it's not okay. So, you know, I grew up thinking I, I can never be angry at anything. You know, you don't want to show people that you could be angry at anything. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that you, you split it off. You split off that part of yourself. Um, and it's still there. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it, it then can express itself, I think, in some unhealthy ways. It's funny because uh, as you say that, it makes me think about the way that I listen to so many of the patients or analysands I have now. And one of the things that will happen with a decent amount of regularity in my sessions is people will tell me that that, yeah, this happened and it's not, I'm not like angry about it, which is a total negation, right? <laughs> yeah, it's great, totally. You know? and, and that's exactly it though. I think it's, that's the effect of growing up in a culture that thinks that expressions of anger are in, in a way always a hundred percent of the time inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Is Same that, with sadness. You know, you're a man, I'm a man. I don't know how you were brought up, but I was brought up. You don't cry, mm-hmm. tough it out. Mm-hmm. You know, so that I'm a pretty sensitive guy, you know, like I was being, I was called, I was named Duke for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, I was, I was supposed to be John Wayne. I was supposed to be a cowboy. Uh, but here I am, this like sensitive little kid, um, just bottling everything up, not being able to express some of those sensitivities. Yeah. And I think that the idea is that when anything is repressed, like in this case, an affect, sadness, irritation, anger, it's not gone. Right. It's very much there. Mm-hmm. And it has, in a, in a sense, it's almost like, like Obi-Wan after Darth Vader kills him, right? It, it only becomes stronger. That's right. You know? Yeah. And its ability to influence you becomes more <laughs> problematic, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's a big part, I think, of Winnicott's work is he wanted to create a space where you use the word play. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, he wanted to create and kind of also going back to an earlier concept about holding a holding environment. Mm-hmm. And what I think that that means, again, it's not like you're, you're hugging everybody in the all the time. It means that this is an environment that can and will be able to hold, contain your anger, mm-hmm. your frustration, your sadness, your idiotic fantasies, mm-hmm. your unrealistic demands, mm-hmm. your um, uh, desires that don't make sense very much, but mm-hmm. you want them anyways, it can be held here. Correct. Now, you'll have to go back out into the world, of course, which is not a holding environment, but, <laughs> but here in this environment, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and he, I haven't really explored this too much in his work, but this idea of regression and exactly what you said, like, he, he, 
he would create this environment that could hold, even if you wanted to or did regress back to a very early stage in your life where maybe you, you weren't able to express that affect or, you know, be, I don't know, vulnerable, another word that gets thrown out there a lot, but uh, that could be that could be ruthlessness, you know, ruthless anger. It could be just a sadness where you're a puddle on the floor. But here's an environment where I've created where you, if you want to explore that, please do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I think we don't do that now. Mm. Um, yeah. And I mean, generally, I, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who do mm-hmm. a lot, create holding environments and actually do allow people to speak freely without kind of like coming in and trying to correct them or whatever. But I also believe that there are tons of places where if a a kid or an adult even comes in and says something like, I've been thinking about killing myself Mm -hmm. or I've been thinking, I I have these fantasies about doing something violent, you know, Um, or or they they say something like, uh, they they really go for it, right? Like mm-hmm. they they're they display these emotions of aggression. Um, they display perhaps their uh, sexual desires, mm-hmm. you know, in in a sort of less inhibited way. When that happens, I think a lot of times what many mental health professionals do is they they send the message that this is not an environment that can handle that. Yeah. And since you've brought that up now, we need to do time out. We need to bring out the assessment. Mm-hmm. We need to say, do you have a plan? You know, um, I'm going to, you've, you've done this. I need to now call 911 and have an ambulance come get you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, all there, these things. Yeah. And there are those <laughs> demands on the profession sometimes, you know, safety is, you know, and, and you do have to kind of take that seriously. But I've had kids slam doors. I've had kids throw chairs. Of course, it's an uncomfortable feeling. Um, but I, I recognize that it's it's usually not about me. <laughs> it's definitely not about me. Um, and... <laughs> Of course, the school has to step in and maybe, you know, offer up some some discipline, even though sometimes they don't. They just, okay, Duke can handle it. But uh, I, I agree with you uh, that that boundary, we talk about boundaries. Um, what I see in schools, they don't want to touch any of that, any of that kind of work. Now, I don't know about private practices or or those types of therapists. Um, But as a parent, it could be instructional that, you know, your kid's going to have these feelings uh, and not to be so afraid of them or try to cut them off so quickly where you want that little super compliant little, little kiddo. Um, Let them explore that. Try to interpret like, huh, what's going on here? Like, try to try to figure out what's going on instead of this quick quick um response to just cut it off or ignore it or not explore it yeah yeah i think that that's that's the key though right like um one of the things that i i believe is a flaw in many mental health systems or or as they're practiced today uh, is that I don't know that clinicians understand something that I didn't understand when I started either, but mm-hmm. I've grown to understand it, or at least I think that I have. You know, you 
when a patient comes in, they're if the therapy that you're doing with them is good at a certain point, they're probably going to reveal things that are hard to reveal Mm -hmm. because when you reveal them, you're vulnerable Mm -hmm. to judgment, rejection, um, Mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of other things too, that Mm -hmm. are really hard to experience being dropped, right? You're vulnerable to being dropped. And, uh, the clinician thinks like, well, yeah, that's what the patient needs to do. That's what the patient is here to do. The patient's here to say those things and be vulnerable in that way and so on and so forth. But I think that it's also an expectation that the therapist needs to be vulnerable too, mm-hmm. right? Doing this work. I mean, if you expect that people are going to like knock on your door and mm-hmm. come into your office or whatever and be like, Hey, Hey, Mr. Novak, I'm having a great day. I've had like 10 great days in a row. <laughs> and I think I'm setting myself up to have day number 11 be like super good too. <laughs> I just wanted to come in and tell you I'm doing great and everything in my life is awesome. You're, you're not going to have that. Mm-hmm. What you are going to have is people coming in or, or being told they need to come in because they got problems, mm-hmm. you know, and you're going to need to be able to, and this is one of the things that Winnicott, I think was super good at with this idea of the holding environment. The holding environment held the anxiety Mm -hmm. that comes up when somebody says something like, my life is really hard right now. I'm super lonely. And from time to time, the idea of not being alive anymore seems kind of appealing to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's going to make the person who says it potentially anxious. It's probably going to make the clinician anxious Mm -hmm. when they hear it. That's part of the job, yo. I agree. You know, you sign up for that. Yeah. And Winnicott was good at seeing that. But I don't think that a lot of practitioners now under, are willing to be. What do you think that is? Is that is that a fear of or a lack of understanding? Well, I, was gonna... I, I, I agree. I see that as well. That kind of um, inability to let it go there or to be to create that kind of environment. What do you think that is? <laughs> I was going to ask you the same question actually, cause you're in the school system, right? You know, I'm, I, I have a private practice. I'm, it's me. Right. You right. know, seeing my patients, I don't, I don't have like a risk management department. Right. Right. Sort of scrutinizing what I'm doing and telling me like, uh, you can't do that. You know, it's, I am my risk management department where I think somebody who's in a more institutional setting, it's not like that, right? So why do you think it is that a school social worker will say? Well, I, I brought up fear and I, I think it is a little bit of fear or even self-preservation. Um, you know, uh, nowadays, you know, there's the lawyers, the lawsuits, the this, the that, that um, a lot of practitioners that I see um, don't want to... Uh, they're scared they're going to get dropped. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think they're scared they're going to get dropped. or And, and that could be in the form of um, a lawsuit, but it could also be in the form of... Losing your job? Losing your job is a big one. Is it definitely a big one? Having somebody make a complaint? Yeah, all those things I think... They don't want. They don't want to happen. So then they play it safe, right? And that that contributes to this overall culture of suppressing, repressing, evacuating, anger, correct, and and these other problematic emotions that we were talking about, right? It, it's which so they may be pervasive. doing themselves, yeah. Which mm-hmm. they are doing themselves. We see it 
everywhere. And that's the thing here. I think that this is part of something about Winnicott's work that is just like so cool, right? Is he saw this, right? I mean, because I mean, he, like everybody who's a psychoanalyst, Winnicott went through his own analysis. I think he went through two. Mm-hmm. He did. And if I remember correctly, the first one was pretty rotten. And the mm-hmm. second one was maybe a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. He has that in common with Lacan. Lacan and Lacan's analyst, not great buddies after the fact, right? <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Um, but anyways, he, he saw this and, and he was like able to understand that there is a toxic effect to bottling that stuff up to, to keeping it in a place where you don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your sadness, your, your anxiety, your anger, your sexuality, all of those things that were, uh, were and very much still are repressed. Yeah. You know, and it, it's happening everywhere. And this is kind of funny. We're talking about this, right? We're talking about, I asked you cause you work in a school, which is an institution, mm-hmm. you know, that would potentially be upset if people, social workers or teachers behaved in a way that was a little bit more uh, tolerant of these emotions. Uh-huh. Uh, it reminds me of, of a story about Winnicott and hospitals. Do you, do you know which one I'm referencing? Uh, I'm guessing the one, no, I don't know, but I, you did ask me that one about when they asked him to work with the cancer patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember, did you ever find that, that reference? I never did, but All right. you asked me that question during the <laughs> oral exam. Yeah, yeah. For for people who are listening to this, <laughs> yeah. um, as Duke mentioned, he's a, a student at the place where I teach, and he's just successfully completed this exercise where, uh, at the end of their second year, doctoral students have to do something. These three big tests. So two of them are written, and one of them is done uh, out loud orally, where you come in and you present a case, and then people ask you questions about the case. So when Duke came in and presented his case, I brought up this anecdote, and I think asked him a question. So. There's an anecdote about how Winnicott worked at, I believe it was Paddington Green Children's Hospital Mm -hmm. in London. And at one point the hospital wanted him to work with very sick children because he was so good at working with kids. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they were like, how, what? You're not going to work with cancer kids? Like what? And he was like, I can't. He's like, if I, if I'm around this all the time, my, to, to keep myself safe from the immense sadness that I will feel, I'll just have to kind of like repress my, my sadness. I'll have to, in a sense, become callous and unable to feel empathy and compassion for people who are suffering. And I don't want to do that to myself. Sterilized. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I guess I bring that up because it makes me think that maybe now there there's Winnicott might have something to teach us in regards to how we interact with the institutions that employ us. Yeah, most definitely. Cause we, we still need people to work with those children, but he, he didn't want to become sterilized. Like, like you were saying, um, to his feelings as a human being, um, you know, the famous little quote, I don't even know if it's famous or not, but you know, fish swim, birds fly, people feel, um, I think he understood that feelings are a part of who we are and that when they're repressed, um, we become more sterilized as a human race um, and maybe even more afraid. Yeah. So this is 
That, that's good. I like that. And it, it makes me think of a quote of Winnicott. So I'm going to just kind of give this quote. And I'm going to ask you what you think it means, or may, if you don't want to say what it means, if it just what it means to you, maybe mm-hmm. is a better way to say it. Um, it is a joy to be hidden and a disaster to not be found. Yeah. Um, it, beautiful quote. <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, the first part, uh, joy to be hidden. Uh, there is some, there is some joy in that. It's, you know, it's hide and seek basically. And and I, when I hear that quote, I picture a little kid, you know, hiding in a game of hide and seek and waiting for people to find that little child. Uh, and how, how disastrous it would be to that child to never be found. It, it makes me think of something that you brought up early on in this conversation about the kind of kids who you work with, who, when you attempt to sort of talk to them, connect with them, understand them, they react by saying, get out of here with that man. Like, I'm not interested in you. You're just like some, some lame person who, who do you think you are to talk to me, you know, or whatever they, they, they kids will be rude. Mm-hmm. They will be defensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will be uh, angry. They'll hate you, etc. Right? And do you think that all of those are examples of the kid attempting to experience the joy of being hidden? Hmm. Um. Yes. Uh, that was interesting how you put that because I was thinking, yes, they they wanted they want the joy to be hidden. Uh, because I don't think they've been found. Um, or maybe that's uh, interesting how you flipped that on me. Because <laughs> um, uh, I'm I'm thinking of those kids when when they kind of express that hate towards me. One one student said, "I thought you were a bitch when I first met you, and we first started talking." Um, and. And that expression of of that hatred, I never equated it to the joy to be hidden, as much as um, as an as a as a maybe it is because allowing them to hate you in that situation, allowing them to express that kind of like you're a bitch and quit talking to me and who are you, dude? Um, Maybe that is an expression of, or, or their desire to be hidden. Um, but if you can tolerate that, if you can kind of get through that little section without dropping them, um, the joy, the, the joy of them eventually being found, uh, is, is remarkable. Um, and, and, and so cool to see if you can tolerate and, and sit through that, um, that little part of your relationship. It, it's usually at the beginning. Uh, sometimes it happens towards the middle and you're like, man, I've, I've done so much work with you. Why are you hating me all of a sudden? Um, but if you can tolerate that even, you know, it's, it's, uh, the child knows that you will find them. So again, I'm going to try to put a couple of things next to each other. You just did it where you were like, you know, when the kid is 
doing these things. It's because mm-hmm. they're afraid of being dropped. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to, you referenced this and maybe at some point in this conversation, I can't remember exactly what we we're talking about, but you talked about the true self and the false self, mm-hmm. which is another really important concept of Winnicott's that we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to suggest here again, I'm curious what you think about this suggestion mm-hmm. is that that bravado that we're describing yeah. You know, of a kid. Uh, and you can also see it in things that are not bravado. I think you might see kids saying like, oh, I can't do that. I'm too fragile. I'm too scared. Correct. I'm too... It's, yeah. it, so it can go that way or it can be like, you know, you're just a stupid bitch. You can't contain me. All of that though... Yeah, like head down. Yeah. ...is an attempt to hide oneself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an example of the false self, what Winnicott calls the false, the not who you really are self and kids hide in that false self that it has all this bravado mm-hmm. or, or that it's just this like delicate broken thing that can't be uh, pushed at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And what it, it's safe, right? It's safe to be in that spot because if you, if your false self gets dropped, that's, that's your false self. That's not you. Mm-hmm. If your false self gets told off or sent to the Dean or kicked out of school, mm-hmm. you know, so be it, you know, mm-hmm. but what's, what is not found in these instances is what I think Winnicott would call the true self. Mm-hmm. I think the true self is what is hiding mm-hmm. within the false self that does all this kind of like problematic behavior stuff. Yeah. And I think these kids have uh, possibly learned over time that they won't be found. I, I think they they get used to the reactions from adults Um from these behaviors that we're talking about, um, whether it be, I don't know what's wrong with Johnny, you know, uh, and, and just get ignored. Um, they're, gosh, now you really have me thinking about this little quote of his, but, uh, they get used to being it's like a defense. It's like their, like you said, like their false self is like their defense and it feels safe. Um, and they, but they expect adults to kind of react to them in a certain way. And I, I think when you, when you don't, and when you're, when you uh, allow and have some tolerance for these types of behaviors and, and things and try to understand and get through that bravado, um, They they uh, maybe get closer to their truer nature. Yeah, but I also want to be clear about something. I don't want to be precious about this true self thing and make yeah. it sound like the true self is like this wonderful thing. Right, right. Because it's not. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, I, I would say that for Winnicott, the true self might be equated with other psychoanalytic concepts like the unconscious, uh, mm-hmm. the subject, mm-hmm. um, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, but it's the it's the self that is an emotional self. 
Correct. Yeah, it's not like the ideal. Right. Right. It's it, So when I say that, um, again, I don't want people to think that the true self is like this great thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, <laughs> you can't just be your true self all the time. Like mm-hmm. if you did that, like the world would fall apart. If everybody did that, I should say the world would fall apart. But, uh, I would say that the true self is the part of you that is inconsistent, temperamental. Mm-hmm. Um, it wants what it wants mm-hmm. sort of unabashedly, uh, regardless of what the impact of wanting it is on other people. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets angry, it gets sad, it gets resentful, it gets possessive, all that stuff. Um, that's that's your true self. And that's, again, the kind of reference part of our conversation from earlier. That's mm-hmm. the part that typically gets repressed in our society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And instead, people are encouraged to create this very consistent, socially appropriate version of themselves, which Winnicott would call the false self. Right. Um, now, some kids, you know, because of, I think, what they live through, create a false self that is angry. It's this mm-hmm. angry false self, mm-hmm. or it's this, you know, terrified, scared mm-hmm. false self, um, or it's this, I'm crazy. Nobody mm-hmm. should, you know, kind of kind of false self. But Winnicott would say that all of that is consistent. Like the kids who do that, they do that consistently. Mm-hmm. And that's to cover over the you know most human part of ourselves which is the true self and the most human part of ourselves is not an easy thing to experience like it's not easy for other people to experience it it's not easy for ourselves to experience it right right because it is so <laughs> unpredictable right and you can also equate that to the kid who just does what they're told and they do well in school and they they listen, you know, follow every rule to the T and they aren't, they, that's their defense. That's their false self that they build up that protects them from experiencing maybe emotions or those repressed parts of ourselves. Yeah. I don't, I yeah. it, it seems interesting to me. It's like the, it's a joy to be hidden. Right. It feels nice to be in your false self. That's your fortress. Right. You're, oh, okay. Now I got you. Yeah. You know? Uh huh. Um, the, the true self is inside the fortress. Yeah. You know, um, it won't come out. Right. And also it's safe from everybody who's outside the fortress too. It's, it's this sort of like double defense in a way. Like, but if you're never found, it's disastrous. No one, I mean, it's the same thing. Like, uh, I said that if, if your, your false self gets rejected, that's fine. Um, but if your false self gets accepted, it, it rings hollow, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, I think that that haunts people in a way where Mm -hmm. they're like, Oh yeah, sure. This person says that they really like me or they, they think I'm really interesting or they think that I'm very smart or who knows uh, some other compliment. And, but it's this like thing like, but they don't even like, they don't know me. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's isolating. It's lonely. And Winnicott felt like the world was kind of full of these people walking around that were these false self zombies, you might want to say. Um, and he really felt that parenting is where we could solve a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. Like we've been talking about this whole time is allowing kids, young kids to explore some of that, you know, not be overly compliant too early or not be neglected too early. Um, that that could, you know, that would make a stronger democracy, he felt, and, and a stronger world. Yeah, it's funny. Like, uh, my, my one of my sons recently, he, he's two. And, uh, you know, when he plays, sometimes he gets really excited. 
and, and, uh, um, he'll take things a little bit too far, you know, <laughs> he'll like, he'll throw things or he'll, mm-hmm. he'll, um, scream, mm-hmm. you know, these sorts of mm-hmm. things. And it, it's not an uncommon thing that either, you know, one of his parents uh, or his grandparents, if they're involved, have to tell him to like chill it out a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes when, when what he's taken and doing when we do that, sometimes is he'll, he'll hit you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that happened recently, and, and so what we decided at that point is like, okay, you're you're too emotional. Like we have to just every this has to stop. Mm-hmm. And um, it was funny because that actually happened to my wife. She was the one who endured it, and I was I was inside the house. They were playing outside. She brought the kid in, and, and he was crying, and came up to me. And he's like, having hard time hit mommy. <laughs> and, and it's just like okay, then you know, my wife actually talked to him about it. Okay, she was like, you know tell me about the hard time. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, he's, he's very inarticulate at this point. He's two, uh-huh. but it wasn't just like, you're done. We're inside. That's that mm-hmm. you're, you're being punished for being a child. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it, it was trying to send the message that you can't do the thing that you just did, but it doesn't mean that you're a monster because you did it. Yeah. Totally. And, and, you know, that's, uh, he, he thought play was just so important, but if you think about play, it, it has its own rules. It has its boundaries. Um, I think of football a lot of the time, you know, uh, it's got its rules for a reason, you know, it's not just barbaric, you know, it's not the gladiators of old. It's, you know, it has to have rules, has to have boundaries, but it allows those players or whoever to, kind of carry out that expression of physicality of anger of competition you know but it has its rules yeah it's a it's a great form of sublimation perhaps right mm-hmm. uh additionally i would i would also say that if you ever watch people watching sports <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> it totally. allows them to get really worked up and super emotional in a way that is socially acceptable as well but those people can't hit mommy Right, right. That's the idea. Here, yeah, you know. Yeah. You, um, so yeah, I don't know. This has been this has been a lot of fun to talk about this stuff, and I feel like we we barely scratched the surface of what Winnicott thinks and, and so much. Yeah, there's there there's so much there. So maybe uh, you could we could do this again sometime and talk more. Yeah, or tune in to my podcast, Blankets and Boundaries, and maybe I'll have you on, Neil. That, that would be really <laughs> a, a pleasure for me to be on your podcast. Do you have that set up now? Do you have like a website? Do you have all that? Or I'm working have, on it. You're working on it's it? It's my summer project. So hopefully by the end of the summer, I'll have some stuff launching. Well, I can tell you this. If it, when you do have it up and running, please let me know and I will plug it on, oh, cool. on this podcast and let people know that it's available because whoever heard this, you know, if you've enjoyed this conversation between yeah. Duke and myself yeah. pretty soon, <laughs> You'll be able to get a lot more Duke in your yeah. ears if you want to. Thank you. Uh, with his podcast, Blankets and Boundaries. Duke, thank you very much for taking the time to be here today. I appreciate it a lot. And uh, I, you know, I hope that we'll have more conversations again soon. Wonderful. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Neil.